Good morning. So nice to be here and see all your faces on this beautiful day. Amen. Well, today we're going to conclude our series. We've been doing a series called We Believe. And for those of you who maybe missed a few of the weeks, you could get them on the archives. Uh, we have them on uh, our live stream as well. But we believe is a creed that the apostles tried to write. Well, actually, it, the apostles didn't write it. It's a writing about the apostles' teachings in a concise manner. And it's an irreducible minimum. What do we believe? What is the foundation? What are the basics that we all believe as Christians? Now, each week we took our, our bulletin and we read the creed, but today I just want us to read the last line with the words we believe in front of it, okay? So let's do that together. We're going to say we believe the forgiveness, okay? We believe the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, we're going to talk about that. What does it mean to forgive? What is forgiveness? It's the wiping away of, of something, a debt, a pardon. The Bible says that there's not a righteous man on the earth who doesn't sin. In 1 John 1, 8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Everybody sins, and everyone needs to be released or forgiven from that debt. So when Jesus forgives our sins and our trespasses, he erases it. He cancels the debt. It's, it's kind of like this. How many people have a mortgage here? Raise your hand high. Okay, you have a mortgage, you have monthly payments, maybe it's a 15, 20, 30-year mortgage. How many of you have a car note? Okay. Now, how about if I took that debt and I paid for it? And I said, you don't have to pay that anymore. I took your debt. In a sense, in a much smaller degree, in a sense, that's what Jesus did. He took what you owed, the debt you all owed, I owed, and he paid it for us. You know, sometimes I, I have a, when he was on the cross, you remember his words were, it is finished. That was really a term, a finance term, where they would stamp documents, tell telestai, it is finished. The debt is paid. And I've had conversations, even with some family, where, and maybe you had the conversation like this, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not a sinner. But take a look at this video, and we'll talk about it. The serpent is more clever than any wild animal God has made. One day, he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replies. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. 
You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced, so she took the fruit and ate it, then gave some to her husband, who ate it too. Suddenly, their eyes opened, and they felt shame at their nakedness. As the cool evening breezes blew, the man and his wife heard the sound of God strolling in the garden. They hid in the trees of the garden. God called to the man. Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replies. That's why I ate it. Then God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed. More than all animals, you will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. You'll give birth to your babies in pain. And to the man, he says, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, getting things from the ground will be as painful as having babies is for your wife. Sweating in the fields from dawn to dusk until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, stationed mighty angels to the east of the garden, and placed a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. See, here's the dilemma. The dilemma is inherited sin. If we take a look at Romans 5:12, it says, "Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sin." See what Paul was telling us is that through Adam sin entered the world and it was passed on to all people. If we think about our traits, our physical traits that are passed on to us from our parents, the same thing from our ancestor, Adam. We have been given the sin DNA, and there's not one person who doesn't have this characteristic and this trait. See, we're sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. We can't help but sin because our nature has been inherited. So we have, not only do we have this inherited sin nature, there's another type of sin that not one person in this room or anywhere on the earth can say they do not have, and that's personal sin. Because of your own sin nature, we sin from the small white lies to the most horrible murders. We have our accountable, we are accountable for inherited sin and our personal sins. But Christ paid the penalty. 
for all our sins. Forgiveness, at first when I got this message, it was like, wow, this is so basic. Everybody knows God forgives them. But it it is so attacked by the enemy. He doesn't want you to know that you need forgiveness because there's sin in the room here. You all need forgiveness. We all do. But it's clear. It's a clear path. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the second half of that scripture, it says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God desires to forgive us. He sent his son to die for our forgiveness. He's not willing that anyone would reject him. Romans 6.23 says, the first half of that sounds depressing. The wages of sin is death. If we are all sinners, we are condemned to death, eternal separation from God. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. As God, Jesus' death provided forgiveness for the entire world. 1 John 2 says this, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. So Jesus, as we learned over the several weeks, the Apostles' Creed, he rose from the dead, he was victorious over sin and death, and he had victory over that. So praise God through his resurrection. The second half of Romans 6, we can claim First half, the the wages of sin is death. The second half, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we can have this forgiveness. It's available to the whole world, but not the whole world receives it. I want you to hear me today. Something is required. We need to repent Repentance is is turning away from the way you were living and turning to God. Countless times in the Bible we read, repentance is necessary. I have a few that will be behind me. Acts 3.19, it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. See, he's not telling you, repent, repent. He's telling you, repent, and times of refreshing, and the embrace of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's a beautiful thing to repent. It's not a stern father telling you, repent, you sinner, or you're going to hell. He's saying, repent, I love you. I'm not willing that any would perish. Acts 20, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance 
and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Acts 26, 20. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. He's saying it covers everything. It covers the known world then, okay? His forgiveness. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. In other words, you don't just repent, say, I'm sorry, God, and then live the way you're living. You make a change in your deeds. Repentance is turning away from that life and living a new life. Even Jesus' own words in Luke 13 said, Jesus said, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will perish. But again, that scripture in 2 Peter chapter 2, the, the whole thing, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. You know, those who reject Christ because of ignorance or because of willful, habitual rebellion will not receive this forgiveness. Doesn't matter whether a person misses the way because of ignorance or, they, or rebellion, they still miss the way. Didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. People might claim, claim that they're ignorant, that they didn't know better, but they're not as dumb as they claim. Because even, <laughs> just look at creation. How could you look at creation and deny a creator? How could you look at the design in nature and deny a designer? Paul writes it like this in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made, so they are without excuse. See, we're accountable for what we know. Not one person can say that they don't know better. And those who you might be watching on live stream, you're accountable for what you know. You're accountable for what you hear. This is the truth. First Timothy chapter 1, 13. Even though I was a blasphemer, here Paul is saying, even in ignorance, he sinned. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a violent man, dragging people to, to jail that were believers. And he says this, in 1 Timothy, he writes, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Ignorance and unbelief. Maybe some people might be acting in that way. But again, if you're willfully rejecting God, there's a stern warning I have for you here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, and again are entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off now than they were from the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness 
than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. You know, there's a warning there. You repent, truly repent, turn away. But if you repent and continue down your path, you've tasted the forgiveness of God, but now you turned away. It says like a dog returns to his own vomit. That's what it's like. But it's never too late to turn back. That's the beauty of forgiveness. You could turn back. I love this. I brought, I brought this globe as an example because there's a psalm I love. I know Sue and I share this passion for the psalms. I love the psalms. Speak to my heart. But Psalm 103 is one of my favorites. And I want to just take a couple verses from Psalm 103, starting in verse 10. And when the he is referring to God, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who love, who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. You know, when you talk about as far as the east is from the west, it's really to, to show an infinite space. You know, God didn't say as far as the north is from the south, he's removed our sin. Because you notice if you go north, eventually at the poles you're going to go south. So you're, you're, you're meeting, north and south meet. So that would put a limit on God's forgiveness. But he says, as far as the east is from the west, you can keep going east and you're always going east. You're never going to meet west. You're never going to go east so far and then all of a sudden you're going west. East, what it's showing you is there's an incalculable uh, forgiveness. You can't measure God's forgiveness. That's how much he loves you. He forgives you in ways that we can't fathom, as far as the heaven is above the earth. That's how he forgives us, if we repent and turn to him and receive him. There's no condemnation in that, uh, that kind of forgiveness. In Romans uh, 8, Paul writes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Your sins, you never have to answer for your sins ever again. And when you remember them and you're haunted by them, that's not God reminding you. That's Satan tormenting you. You tell him to get behind you, and you press on forward because you've been forgiven. But if we claim to have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, to purify us from all unrighteousness. We can't say I'm a good person. And we can't hope God looks the other way. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice that was required. Death had to happen when there was sin in the camp. I want to read from the book of the law. We're talking about in Leviticus. This is one of the first five books of the Bible. This is where the Jews, the Israelites, got the law. 
And here in Leviticus, it says this, when anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they are to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value in silver according to the shekel, the sanctuary shekel. It is a guilt offering. The priest will make atonement for them with the ram as a guilt offering, and they will be give, they will be forgiven. So a ram would be offered for every guilt trespass. Okay, now later Paul writes and refers back to the law, and he writes in the book of Hebrews. If you go home and take notes and write it in the back, read nine chapter nine and ten because there's so much more detail that I don't have time to talk about right now, but. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, sacrificed animals had to be done over and over. And really what this was was a shadow of something to come, a better sacrifice, a it postponed judgment for them at the time, but they had to offer it over and over again. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. These are just excerpts, okay? Uh, chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For the reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would have been stopped. They would have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and lambs and rams to take away sin. Hebrews 10:11. Here's the clincher. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And when the priest, this priest, we're talking about Jesus Christ, the high priest, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, further down in verse 16, we read, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put the law in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. For as the east is from the west, he won't remember those sins. And where those sins are forgiven, the sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. He was the sacrifice. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. And he alluded to this at the Last Supper when he, said, when he told them, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the only requirement for every one of us is to repent, turn away. And one final point about forgiveness. I, I, maybe you wondered about this scripture too. 
when it says confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you. It almost seems like our forgiveness is dependent upon our confessing our every little sin. And I want to talk about just how positionally, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, he forgives you and cleanses you of all that inherited sin, okay? What we're talking about in John 1.9 is a relational situation. And Pastor Carlos talked a little bit about it, how you can grieve the spirit of God. We even talked about it in worship today. You can separate yourself from the spirit and, and, and clog your relationship. That's what First John, keep your accounts clear so that your relationship with God is pure. Confess your sins often, daily. All right, the next part of the creed, we read this. The resurrection of the body. Now, why, why is the resurrection of Christ's body so important? Because it's the most important event in history. It validated his deity. It confirmed and authenticated his claim to be Christ and that he would rise on the third day and he would not have decay. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Apart from the resurrection, we have no savior, no salvation, no hope of eternal life. And even Paul writes, our faith is useless if we don't believe in the resurrection. In the first letter of the Corinthians, he talks about sowing. He talks about our body when we are uh, born in the physical, it's sown uh, in, in a perishable way because we've been born in sin. And when we die, we, we place in the ground, we die. Our, our body dies. And he compares it to a seed. When you think about a seed, remember we gave out some packets. If you haven't gotten any of these, we still have plenty. <laughs> but if you look at a seed, this is a sunflower seed. It doesn't look anything like the plant that comes up or the flower that it produces or the seeds that come from the flower. And here Paul was using a seed sown in the ground as an example. A seed has to die. You put it in the ground, it dies. But then it's resurrected again uh, when it starts to grow but it's a whole different body. That's how our body will be. In 1 first, first Corinthians, I want to read, it says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, then the saying that is written will come, death has been swallowed up in victory. See, through Adam, our bodies were, originally we were perfectly suited to live forever. But because of sin, we became perishable. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But we're going to be raised because Christ was raised. We will be raised in like manner. See, we get a glimpse at, at what our resurrection bodies will look like if we look at Jesus when he came back. He had visible wounds. His, his, his disciples could touch him. He could travel distances 
Uh, he could pass through doors and walls, and uh, he could eat. Thank God we could still eat. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he had a body. He wasn't just resurrected in spirit. We will have a resurrected body as well. And it'll be like his body, a glorious body. And our, you know, because of our eternal destinies rest on the resurrection, this has been one of Satan's biggest attacks against the church, to discount the resurrection. And over the years, we have professors and theologians who have debated uh, the historicity of the resurrection, that it didn't really happen. So I, I want to just cover that a briefly. Resurrection means rising from the dead. A, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. That's what Jesus said. Paul tried to convince the Corinthians that Christ rose from the dead and our resurrection is dependent on our belief in that. When Jesus was resurrected, he became the first fruit. This is, stay with me here. This is really important. Verse uh, Colossians 1.18 says this, and he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacies. See, the Israelites, when they had their crop, they had to bring a sampling to the priest as the first fruit before they could harvest. So they would bring the sampling of the first fruit, but more was going to come the bigger crop was going to come. See, Jesus was the first fruit in your all, the crop. Those who confess Christ as Lord, you are what followed the first fruit. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 22 says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So the first fruit language is, is really pointing that something else will follow, and that was the church of Jesus Christ. Guarantees it. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. You know, some, some people doubt whether the resurrection even happened, or even the fact that Jesus really even died. They think he faked his death. The apostles, if we look at the eyewitnesses of people who saw him resurrected, okay, over 500 of them, and yet even though they were uh, persecuted and they endured and prolonged torture and even death, they did not deny the resurrection as being true. The apostles, look at them. They, <laughs> they underwent a tremendous change. Here they hid. When Jesus was crucified, they hid. And yet when he was resurrected, they went out and proclaimed boldly the truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look at, um, like I was talking about the empty tomb. Some people say, well, the disciples stole the body. But then again, if we think about that, the early Christians in Rome in 64 AD, I don't know if you know about this, but Nero 
set fire to a portion of the city because he wanted to expand his own palace. And he blamed it on the Christians. And because they were blamed, I want to read from a historian's account. He says this, An intense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their death, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, or they were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. These early believers could have denounced it and said, no, it isn't true. The resurrection isn't true. No, we stole the body. But they didn't. They endured this because they knew it was true. Can you imagine he, he lit up his garden, Nero lit up his garden with believers. Not one record of early Christians denouncing their faith, their faith to end their suffering, not one. And as far as Christ faking his death, I want to read this from Josh McDowell's book. This is so concise. He said, Christ was beaten, tortured, lacerated, and stabbed. He suffered internal damage, massive blood loss, asphyxiation, a stab through his heart. There's no reason to believe that Jesus Christ or any other man, for that matter, could survive such an ordeal, fake his death, sit in a tomb for three days and nights without medical attention, without food or water, remove the massive stone which sealed his tomb, escape undetected without leaving a trail of blood, convince hundreds of eyewitnesses that he was resurrected from the dead and in good health, and then disappear without a trace. Ridiculous notion, right? The resurrection is true, and because of it, we have hope of a resurrection too. It secures our resurrection. Now, the next part of the Apostles' Creed reads this. says this, and the life everlasting. Now, before I talk about what is everlasting life, eternal life, what is that? Let me talk to you first about what eternal death is. In short, eternal death is the fate that waits for all people who reject God who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and remain in their sin. Physical death is a one-time experience. Eternal death is twice. You die here physically, and then you face eternal death if you deny Christ. We can point to several passages that explicitly talks about eternal death. Now, I don't want to be a downer, but this is, <laughs> this is Bible. This is truth, okay? Verse, and this is in the ESV version. And many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 25, 46, and the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And finally, in Revelation 20, 
11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according what they had done according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The dead and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person, everybody say each person. Each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, all three of these passages have this in in common, okay? And there should be a slide there. You might want to write this down. When Christ returns, three things are going to happen. The general resurrection of the living and the dead, the final judgment, and the inauguration of the eternal state. Each of the passages that I just read uh, demonstrates that during the final judgment, all people, that uh, Jesus, we talked about it weeks after weeks, he'll separate the sheep from the goats. He'll separate the righteous from the unrighteous. One to eternal life, the unrighteous to eternal death, eternal punishment, eternal torment. The doctrine of eternal death is not a popular doctrine, not one to teach, not one to proclaim, but it shouldn't detract us from hearing the truth. It's a reality. Satan doesn't want you to hear that. Eternal death or eternal life. Within the creed, the words, an everlasting life, offers hope to this hopeless situation. The word of God assures us that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who repent of their sin, can receive forgiveness, have resurrection life, and everlasting life. You know, everlasting is perpetual. It's ongoing. It's never-ending. You know, one of my favorite psalms is um, where it says, teach us to number our days right. That we have 50, maybe, uh, uh, no, 70, maybe 80 years on this life. And it's like a twinkling of an eye. And then there's eternity. You know, eternity can start for you right now. Eternal life can start for you right now. As soon as you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, your spirit is renewed. And you're born again. See, we talked before about you living, you're born once, and then when you die without Christ, you die twice. But when you're a Christian, you're born twice. You're born in the physical, you're born again in the spirit, and you you only die once, and then you live for all eternity. Will you choose eternal life? The path is simple. God assures us, that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have everlasting life. When God created Adam and Eve, 
He put them in the garden in the tree of life. I showed you the video earlier, intending that they would live joyously and forever, physically and spiritually. But when they sinned, he had to set a guard there because he wanted... He didn't want mankind to, to live under the weight of sin for all eternity. Romans 5 says this, Nevertheless, de death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did. Again, that's inherited sin. But the gift is not the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses, many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation of all people, so also one act resulted in the justification of life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. You have a choice. You could be born once and die twice. We have that slide. Or you can be born twice and die once. That's something to write down. You have a choice. In Revelation 22, it talks about the restoration of the tree of life. And this applies to all who confess Christ as their Lord. 22, verse 1 and 2. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. See, in Eden, when we saw the video, in Eden, what rebellion happened, they were separated from the tree of life. And now the Lamb of God is restoring the tree of life. Right now, every sinner... Every sinner is invited to know Christ, to receive this eternal life. Revelation twenty-two seventeen says, Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take this free gift of the water of life. So how can you know whether you have eternal life? How can you know? Have you asked have you submitted? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus Christ died for your sins. I don't care where you're at. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what horrible things you've done. We could all, you know, think back of, 
things that we wish we didn't do. But his love will cover the multitude of your sins and separate them from you as you turn to him. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. The choice is clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's a gift, too. It's by grace. We don't deserve it. We can't pay for forgiveness. We can't earn our way. You need to receive it. You need to ask him for his grace. Now, I understand there's a lot of people here that know the Lord, but I believe that there are some who really never turned away and repented of their sins, and they want to do that right now. So I'm going to give you an opportunity, wherever you're sitting, if that's you, if you just want to stand and say, yeah, I want a, I want a new, clean slate. I want to be forgiven, assured of a resurrection, newness of life. Because the last part of this creed, the word was amen. Amen. Let it be so. It is so. Let it be so today. I see one person standing. Anybody else? I want you to stand. Okay. Stand. Profess this. Praise God. He loves you so much, and he has so much patience with us. You so much. Now, a prayer doesn't seal something. Your heart does. So I want to lead you all in a prayer. The words are not as important as what your heart is speaking. Okay? So just bow your heads and I want you to pray this out loud to Him. God, I know I sinned, sinned against you. And I'm deserving of punishment. But Jesus took the punishment that I deserve so that through him, in faith, I could be forgiven. I place my trust in you for my salvation. Thank you for your wonderful grace and for your forgiveness. Amen. Let's everybody stand. Hallelujah. I want to pray for you all. Gracious Father, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your love and your mercy and your goodness, your tenderness, God. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit you draw people unto yourself, God. Lord, I thank you for everyone who was bold to stand and confess that you are their Lord. Lord, that they will repent and turn away from their way of life and now run to you, God. Run your way, God. 
Fill them up, Lord. Fill them up. Fill them with your spirit, God. May they be empowered by your presence. Bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.